Um, so the last couple of weeks, we have seen that David has been um, the anointed king over Israel and that uh, that he was appointed and anointed by God through the prophet Samuel. And he was, um, but obviously it was during the reign of King Saul. We saw Saul go crazy, but bring David into his court and then go crazy and paranoid and started to drive David off. And we saw David go through this real learning experience along the way where he uh, realized at some point that he could not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And so he never, he didn't. And, um, and we see this sort of development of David being a man after God's own heart, whose real desire is more than anything to please the Lord and to live in accordance with his will. And this shows great promise, I I think for all of us, as we're, um, as, as, uh, God is establishing his kingdom, really, what seems like through the nation of Israel we, we see this character, David, come up, this person, David, come up and and he shows great promise. He's making decisions that are, you know, not at all like Adam. The, the, he's making decisions that are uh, that are upright and and biblically sound and following after God's will and and things like this. But then there's some other things that he, he does and will do uh, on into the future that are troubling, to say the least. And, uh, and we'll see at least one of those tonight. We already have seen some of those, um, in, uh, and, and we'll, we'll see a few more. Um, so last week, what we, what we dealt with was as soon as David had taken the kingdom or as soon as Saul dies, David is supposed to have taken the kingdom. But what we saw was that when, as soon as that, that possibility came up, Abner, who was the general of Saul, appointed Ishbosheth, who was Saul's surviving heir, as king. And so that effectively divided the kingdom where David was in control of Judah, pretty much, which was the southern, one of the southernmost provinces uh, in, in, the, in the land. Uh, it pretty much divided Judah away from all the rest of the tribes. And so uh, all the rest of the tribes were kind of united under the nation of Israel with Ishbosheth sort of as their king. But as we saw, it was is a very fragmented kingdom. David didn't take over a kingdom that was united in any way. And Ishbosheth wasn't king of a kingdom that was united in any way. They, uh, all, all of it was was pretty really divided, heavily divided. But the the vast majority of the tribes are under Ishbosheth's reign and David is sort of over Judah. And uh, but what we saw last week was that Abner, it seems, really put Ishbosheth in place because he knew perhaps he could control Ishbosheth, that Ishbosheth was sort of more like a puppet in many regards. And so Abner put him up there, but then Abner started growing in strength and power um, inside the nation of Israel. But on the whole, Israel's kingdom got weaker and weaker. The northern kingdom got weaker and weaker. And David's kingdom in the south got stronger and stronger. He gradually began to attract more people um, and to come under his kingship. And he was uh, gathering strength and growing his influence. And so it grew stronger and stronger. And at some point, uh, Abner realizes this is just not going to work. And it's, it's the moment when Ishbosheth comes to Abner and accuses Abner of trying to uh, take control of the northern kingdom. And I think 
my hunch tells me he probably was. He um, most likely put Ishbosheth in that place because Ishbosheth is weak, and the only way for his power and influence to actually grow was to have kind of a weak puppet king in there and him sort of take off. And, and, um, and so, uh, he, uh, Ishbosheth calls Abner out on it for basically trying to come on to Saul's concubine, which basically was a way of taking over the throne. And, uh, he calls him out on it and, and Abner retaliates and says, you know what, you know, forget this. I'm going to, I'm going to go make David King and I'm abandoning you. And I would, and Abner was really Ishbosheth's only means of support that kind of garnered enough support from the Northern tribes. And so when Abner leaves and goes to David, uh, Ishbosheth is sort of left in a lurch and, uh, but Abner is sort of making, is sort of wheeling and dealing with David, it seems to get some sort of, uh, maybe position of authority or something like that in his kingdom. We, we suspect that that's probably what was going on is that he's getting some sort of, uh, it's a power play as it were. And uh, once um, Joab comes back and sees Joab is, is David's uh, chief in command. Uh, once Joab comes back and sees that Abner is now making a play, Abner killed Joab's brother. Remember once once Joab sees that, he's like, no, 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 this, this cannot happen. And so Joab catches Abner uh, unawares and, and kills him. And Joab, we'll see, is a bad dude. He is a, he's a, a Navy SEAL of sorts. And so uh, he, uh, he makes sure that Abner comes to a swift death uh, for, kill, for killing his brother, probably also for trying to take his position or take a position of authority in David's kingdom. And so the, the, what we, the point we were at in the history yes, uh, last week was that David had to do something because he here has brought Abner down to him. There's been this sort of deal and the Northern tribes, all they're going to know is that Abner went down there made a de- to try to make a deal with David and Abner's chief in command executed, uh, I mean, uh, David's chief in command, Joab executed Abner on site. And so how does that look to the Northern tribes? Well, it looks really bad. And so David uh, is, is trying to make sure that the Northern tribes understand that he didn't have anything to do with the murder of Abner and wants to really make amends and really does want to take control of the throne. And at the same time, somebody, uh, two assassins go to Ishbosheth and kill him while he sleeps, while he's taking his afternoon nap. And so David's got this whole mess on his hand, and he so he calls a nationwide mourning for the death of Abner and extols the virtues of Abner, which you know I believe David is is being honest here. He's he's saying that he he really liked Abner. He didn't deserve to die. He had nothing that he deserved to die for. And so uh, essentially, um, it, it seems that that as as David puts out this kind of call to mourning at the end of chapter four, all the nation that sees this really uh, appreciates that about David and, um, and is willing to follow him wherever he goes. And so this actually garners a ton of support for David. But now we've come to the point in the history where, um, where the tribes of Israel are ready now to anoint David as king and to live under his kingship, all of them together. And it still is going to be divided, and we're going to see it's still divided over time. But 
it shows it's showing some signs of promise. Okay, now at this point in the history, things start getting a little bit more complex. And the reason is because David was appointed and anointed king over Israel, and this was God's king, remember. The book of Ruth is there to kind of point you in the direction in the history that God is preparing his king in David to sit on the throne. And before Israel even knew any of this was taking place, he did this in the book of Ruth. And that's why the book of Ruth is situated where it is. But so when David finally takes the throne, there's tons of promise. This is what everyone in Israel is really waiting for. God's uh, anointed king, God's man, as it were, to sit on the throne. Everybody is really excited about this. And so what you're going to get then in the history of Israel is a lot of voices speaking into the lineage of David. And so what that means is that at this point in the story, we're going to get to the, we're going to, the book of Chronicles is going to come into play. And so the chronicler, I'm going to call him the chronicler from here on out. So you just know the chronicler is the person that wrote first, what we call first and second Chronicles, which is really just it's really just one book chronicles, but we call it first and second chronicles. The first and second doesn't really mean anything. It's just chronicles. And the chronicler would be a a person, or it could be probably a, maybe a a small group of people that compile these stories about uh, David. But the the point is that the chronicler is also going to speak about the lineage of David. And he's going to, um, to, to speak into the, the events around um, David's, throne, his lineage. Um, and, and what you have to know about the book of Chronicles is that it's written clearly after the children of Israel have, especially the, the Southern kingdom has come out of Babylonian exile, which is some 500 years from David's reign. So Chronicles is a very, is a much later written book. It's not, it's not early on. And so um, so this is a, a chronicler that's looking back on the lineage of David and, uh, you know, discussing the stories that were are telling us about the, the things that happened in that uh, in his kingship and Solomon's kingship thereafter. Now, if you've ever read the book of Chronicles, if you're going through the, you know, the reading through the uh, the the Bible with us or, or maybe you're on your own plan or something like that. Um, you, you've probably come to the book of Chronicles and you've gone, man, I feel like I've heard this story already, or I feel like I've, this, this story is, is sort of well, well worn. And if you just read first and second Samuel and then first and second Kings, and then you go into first and second Chronicles, it feels like just this repetition over and over, but it's, you'll notice that in Chronicles, um, he is one. the The author is very uh, pro David. Uh, he, he's a he's a proponent of the Davidic dynasty because he realizes that that there's some significance to David's line. And what you'll also note is that there are certain aspects of David's story that the chronicler does not mention. As an example, would be David and Bathsheba. The chronicler leaves out David and Bathsheba altogether. Now, now, why does he do that? Well, some will tell you because, well, you wanted to avoid all the embarrassing stuff, but that, that's not really true because he, he discusses a lot of complex things in David's, in David's uh, kingship that were not really that great. And, and he, 
like the numbering of people and things like that, that, that were not really good. And he, he mentions them unabashedly. Instead, what he's trying to do is avoid a repetition of certain facts that are already well-worn soil for, uh, for anybody that's read Second Samuel. The chronicler, it seems, has Second Samuel in hand. Uh, or has first and second Samuel in hand, has the history of David in hand and is really trying to avoid a lot of those things. Well, then what is the purpose of the book of Chronicles? Why would you even write the book of Chronicles if you're just going to give some, some, uh, you know, kind of the same, the same story as it were um, from a different author? Well, it's clear that what he's trying to do is uh, he's interested in stressing that, that the messianic kingdom and the messianic king is is first of the line of David that his lineage is very important and uh, and so he's stressing the messianic king but he's also stressing that that messianic king of the line of David also functions as a priest of Yahweh and so you'll you'll hear sometimes people will refer to Chronicles as a priestly book or as a book that's and some people even think it was it was penned by a priest but um, but it, it's, it's clearly someone who's wanting to elevate the lineage of, of David and the, the, the king, the throne of David, uh, up to the level of not only just king, but also, also priest. And so you're getting these two voices of, of priest and king coming together in the book of Chronicles. And, and honestly, this is really helping us as we read through the book of Chronicles. It helps us to, to establish those two functions together so that we, when we get to Jesus, we're ready for someone who's not just uh, king, but who's prophet and and priest and king, and uh, and so, so essentially, um, the chronicler is just trying to to point these out, and um, he's what he also does in the process is he's going to point out that uh, even in the years where David was running from Saul. This is something you don't hear much in 2 Samuel. We get little whispers of it, and we kind of know it's there in the background. But the author of Samuel is much more concerned with the kingdom and the, the throne and how the throne is, is accessed, you know, and wh- where God is moving and things like that, than necessarily the priesthood and some other things in the background. And so the chronicler is pointing out that, hey, when, da- when David was on the run from Saul, there were lots of people that were coming under his reign that were not just people in Judah. There were lots of people that were recognizing um, his election and were understanding that David uh, was king. And it's not, it's not but, the, but the book of Chronicles that we really get uh, insight into that information. So I'm going to, I'm sorry, that, that was an accidental click there. Um, don't cheat. All right. All right. There we go. Um, I wanted to, I meant to touch my iPad and I touched my mouse instead. Um, so I want to read from the book of Chronicles, uh, just a few of these passages that help us to see, uh, exactly this. So like first Chronicles 12, one to two, you should have that in your verse packet. If you were able to print that out, uh, or you got that in your email, uh, uh first Chronicles 12, one to two. Now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag while he could uh, not move about freely because of Saul. So he's on the run from Saul. Remember, this is, this is on back. This is back uh, in 1 Samuel. So uh, he, when he was about, when, uh, t- when he could not move about because of Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. 
two, uh, or sorry, they were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either right hand or left hand. They were some bad dudes and they were Benjaminites. So th- here these people were from the tribe of Benjamin. And then Second uh, Chronicles 12, 16 and 17, you have uh, some of the men of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold at David, uh, to David um, in First uh, Chronicles 12, 19 to 22. Some of the men of Manasseh deserted to David. Um, you, so you have uh, Manasseh, Benjamin, obviously Judah is joining in the fray. Several other tribes are joining in the fray. So you, you have the chronicler is pointing out to us, hey, look, there were people that were joining David even back when he was running from Saul and recognizing David's lineage and his kingship very early on. So, uh, so just, just know that, that, that David's foundation as king, uh, there were whispers throughout, throughout the nation of Israel that, yes, uh, David is the anointed and we are going to follow him in spite of the fact that Ishbosheth was technically over the northern tribes. Okay. Um, so, Blake, you can interrupt anytime if there's any questions that have been asked. But um, so uh, let's move on to the next section where David is anointed king. And what we're going to see in this passage uh, in the first five verses of 2 Samuel 5 is that after the death of Ishbosheth, David becomes king over all of Israel. And the tribes of Israel, uh, obviously, we're talking about the tribes outside of the tribe of Judah because the tribe of Judah was already pretty much all under David. They all, they came to David at Hebron, or at least the elders, the leaders of that tribe, they come to David at Hebron and they uh, claim him as a kinsman. And so you'll, we see this in second Samuel uh, five, one to five. We also see, we also see much more of it in first uh, Chronicles 12, 23 to 13 or 20, 23 to 40. And, and what I want to say about this too, before we read second Samuel, cause that's, we're not going to read the first Chronicles passage, but um, in, in first Chronicles, what you'll notice, like in second Samuel, it's just the leadership. It's, it's sort of a bunch of people from Israel came to David and, and, and pronounced this over him in Chronicles. Chronicles lists all the tribes that are coming. Chronicles wants you to know just how many people were coming in there. So you can tell kind of where the author is coming from the perspective he wants you to see, but second Samuel five, one to five, uh, it says this, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned for 40 years at Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel uh, and Judah 33 years. All right. So, um, so these people come to David at, at Hebron, where David is situated. Hebron, remember, is in the is kind of in the southern portion of the of the tribe of Judah, their allotment, and um, 
and a little bit south of Jerusalem. And I'm going to show you a map in just a second, so don't panic. Um, but so they, they come to, to David at Hebron and they say, we, you are our bone and our flesh, which is another way of saying you are, uh, you are with us. We are with you. You are, you are flesh and blood is the way we would say it. Um, you are, we're your brothers, we're your kinsmen. And so it's, it's a, it's a statement of unity, but it, it surely it does have some, uh, tinge of irony or perhaps, uh, give you some inkling into how, what, what the nation of Israel expects of God's King as he is appointed to kind of head up God's kingdom. Because you'll remember as far back as the early pages of Genesis, even Adam, uh, Eve is crafted from at, from Adam's side, and he, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, Adam says. And uh, as he is uh, king, he has his his people, his, his Eve, his bride, his helpmate, uh, to go alongside him. Um, this is Dave, David is now ruling, and so that there's. A lot of theology, probably theological points, could probably be made here about David taking the head of the kingship and the the really the head of the kingdom of God, and is appointed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and subdue it he shall, which is exactly what he's about to begin doing. But um, but David is going to take his people and he's going to lead them and allow them to flourish in the kingdom uh, that God has, that God has established. He's going to fail in spectacular ways, but he is also going to begin this establishing of, of the kingdom of God. And what we need to see, what you need to understand that's happening in the next few chapters, it's going to take us a few weeks to get through chapter eight of second Samuel, but this little section, second Samuel five to eight, there's this pattern of stories that develop along the way. And what you'll see is that David goes into a battle and he has victory. And then after the victory, he goes to house building. So it, it, there's, the, and it's this pattern that goes three times of victory, then house building, victory, then house building, victory, then house building. And so it, it, it's sort of establishing this very idea that what David is doing is is building out uh, the kingdom of God, as it were. David has been anointed three times king over Israel, including this one, where he is uh, he he was first anointed by God and brought into the kingdom of Saul, um, and then was uh, a, a anointed a bit later on, where he begins to unite, as we saw with the chronicler, begins to unite the people of Israel under him. And then now he's united, or he's uh, anointed yet again. And what he's now about to do, now that Israel is underneath him in this anointing. So before this anointing, uh, the second the, during the second anointing, Israel comes under his kingship. Now this third anointing, what he's going to begin doing is actually conquering the Gentiles. And so you can see uh, this sort of slow-moving evolution of God's kingdom sort of coming into fruition where David's going to expand the borders of the kingdom beyond what it's ever seen before. And so uh, we get this sort of chart here that just helps you kind of see how this story is going to develop over the next few chapters. And it's very, very important that you see how, see the pattern that is, is coming into, into play here in a minute, because there's some very interesting things about it. For one, the first cycle that we're going to see is that 
you know, he conquers the city of Jerusalem and establishes his palace there, but then, or establishes his, or takes hold of the city and then begins to establish his palace there. And then, then he's going to immediately begin to move out and we'll get to the Philistines next week, but he's going to move out and, and conquer the Philistines. And then, um, he's going to then come back to actually building Yahweh a house, which is sort of, uh, this, uh, we'll see kind of like a permanent tabernacle, uh, as it were. And then he's going to engage in wars of various kinds with various different groups and he's going to establish a royal household after that. And so it's this, it's this pattern that's developing over the next three chapters that's very important that you see. And it's very clear that the author is doing this intentionally. He's showing you these things intentionally, that God's kingdom as it expands also includes um, the, the expanse of, of, uh, of the nation of Israel as well. So, and the driving out of, of the, the, um, the Gentiles. Now, one thing that David realizes at the very beginning is if I'm going to be the king, then we're going to have to relocate the capital. And so uh, that's going to be really, really important. We've got to relocate the capital. And there's several reasons why he does that. But um, for one, Hebron, we know, is a, is a, priest, is a priestly city. It's a, it's a city that was given to the Levites. And it was also a, one of the six cities that was um, a refuge city. So if you killed somebody and, you, you, and their brother was going to come after you for killing them, but let's say it was an accident or something like that, you could run to a, a sanctuary city, um, and, which has no affiliation with today's modern, the way we use it modern, in modern lingo. But uh, you could move to this sanctuary city and you would have effectively a sanctuary there where you, you wouldn't be retaliated against. Hebron was one of those cities. Ironically, obviously, um, uh, Joab kills Abner there, but, but outside of that irony, it's, it's a sanctuary city. So it probably doesn't function really well for a capital. And there's several other reasons why it just doesn't function really well. And so David's going to um, try to negotiate where can he, can he really establish and relocate the capital. And what we realize in the story, if you go too far north to something such as, as Shechem or Shiloh, I'm going to give you all these on a map in just a minute, so don't, don't worry about where they are on a map, but Shechem or Shiloh, you run the risk of venturing outside of the province of Judah, which would be seen as the, from, the Judah, from the Judahites as a betrayal of them that you, you relocate the capital outside of uh, our, our territory. And so, that, so you, you have to, he has to be careful about how far north he goes. And Shechem and Shiloh were both prominent cities. Shechem used by, uh, by Samuel, and Shiloh actually was as well, used by Samuel. And so those cities were probably out um, as a potential relocation. And then you can't go to Gibeah, because obviously Saul's capital was Gibeah, and that would have been anathema to Judah. If it was betrayal to go to Shechem and Shiloh, it would have been anathema. Uh, what, what's worse? It would have been, what, a mutiny would be on their hands if he had gone to Saul's capital. And so Gibeah, which is another big city, is out. Now, when you think about the nation of Israel, don't think of America 
where you've got New York City and L.A. and Dallas and, you know, say Birmingham, Orlando, uh, uh, Minneapolis, uh, Seattle. We've got all these big cities, but we're not talking about that. Almost every state in America has a big city. We're not talking about that. We're talking about small places and, and, and very small cities, and you've got occasionally uh, uh, big cities that, are, that, are, that pop up here and there, so a few of them. So there's only a few possibilities, and those seem to be, although they would be good big cities to establish capital, uh, they seem to be out for, for those reasons and probably some more. So here's kind of a look at the land as a whole. You can see Hebron is there. I hope you can see this. I don't know what it looks like on your end. I can see it just fine. But uh, So you can see in, in Judah, the first flag, you see that orange line is the connection between Hebron and Jerusalem. And um, so in the, in the tribe of Judah, you've got Hebron there towards the south. You've got Jerusalem at the far north. And ignore the dotted lines for now. They're not even really drawn that well. But, um, but uh, Jerusalem is going to be on the northern end, uh, just north of Bethlehem, uh, north of the city of Hebron. Now, here are sort of the important cities where they're located. It's just so you kind of get an idea. It actually, my map didn't have Jerusalem labeled on there. So I put it around the Mount of Olives, which is practically Jerusalem. So you've got the Mount of Olives, which would represent Jerusalem here towards the south. You have uh, Gibeah, which is just barely north of that outside. That would be in the tribe of Benjamin is uh, the, the city of Gibeah. Shiloh is on up north of that. And Shechem is at the, at the very, very top of your screen, it should be. So uh, those important cities that we just listed, those are, that's where they're all located. Over here on the right-hand side, you're going to see the Dead Sea. Jordan River goes up from there and all the way up to the Sea of Galilee, which is not pictured on the map, but it would be just north of what, where the Jordan River is, is leading. Um, so those are kind of the, where the territories are located, all right up that central corridor uh, of, of bigger cities. So most of those cities are out. So David has to come to a central site, which would be relatively neutral for everybody. It needs to probably be a pretty important uh, city. And so by far the best choice is Jerusalem. It's the largest, it's the most impressive, it's strategically located, it's on top of a, several hillsides and mountains, and uh, it is, uh, it's in, I mean, it's prime real estate, and it's a, it's a perfect location, it gives them a high ground, there's some very significant events that took place there, which we'll get to later on, but, um, and so it's a significant Jewish site, but it's also, uh, it's also strategically, it's really important. Um, and it would provide them all, all the best, uh, the best possibilities for their capital. However, there's one big problem with it. And that is that it's currently occupied by the Jebusites. Um, that's less than ideal, uh, that somebody else would be there. It would be nice if it was just owned by Jews, but it's not. And so the question then in the text is, as we come to it, well, he's got the Jebusites to deal with. Does this end, does this mean like a prolonged war that he's going to have to engage in? Well, what's interesting about this city, about the Jebusites, and what's really important to note here, which, which brings us into a bigger theme going in David's dynasty, is this, this idea that his first real battle uh, to take his capital is against the Jebusites. We go to Genesis 15, 18 to 21. 
which says this. It's on the it's the first set of verses on the second page of your your verse packet there. Um, it says, "On that day, this is God talking to Abraham. On that day, the the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites." the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the, that's right, the Jebusites. So the promise from, uh, from the Lord early on, even in making a promise to David, was that, uh, or sorry, to Abraham, was that I'm going to give you this land, and here's all the enemies that are uh, enemies of Israel, and your people are going to possess the land and they're going to they're going to drive all those other people out. Well, as we know, Joshua moved into the land and they began to drive people out, but they didn't finish the job. And everybody kind of went to their own territory and they were responsible as they went to their own territory. After the big battles were over, they were responsible to drive out the rest of the people around them. And they failed miserably. In fact, the book of Judges opens us up to that very notion that they failed miserably in this. And they, uh, so, so really Joshua in his, in his leadership didn't accomplish what he was, what he had initially set out to do. He at least didn't fully accomplish it. Um, and so David engaging with the Jebusites right away is in some respects a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, which is a, a very important part of this whole, this whole history that's been unfolded before us um, in, in these books. And so David sees the Jebusites there and is going to begin engaging them in battle. Um, and so the Jebusites are not too kind about it, but they're, they're, they give a sarcastic response uh, about David coming in, but eventually, but David is going to quickly take through Joab is going to quickly take the city of Israel. I want to show you that it's in Second Samuel five eleven to sixteen, and it's on the it's on the second page, about the uh, towards the bottom of the verses on the second page there. Second Samuel five eleven to sixteen, and Hiram, uh, uh, king of did I, I think I missed a passage, but anyway. Uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, uh, sent David... No, 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 I'm in the wrong place. Let me look here. Hang on one second. Uh, yeah, uh, ver verse 6 to 11. I guess I didn't... Did I not include that? Or is it somewhere else? Oh, it's there it is. I see it. It's on the bottom of the first page. Sorry about that. Second uh, Samuel 5, 6 to 10. And the king and his men uh, went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites the inhabitants of the land, this is Jerusalem, uh, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. So the, 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 the king of the Jebusites who is sitting right now in the land of Jerusalem is being sarcastic and is taunting. He's, he's talking trash to David. And he's saying the blind and the lame are going to ward you off. You're, you're of no match for us. Um, and thinking uh, David cannot come in here. Verse seven, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and, 
And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Uh, Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built some fortified, fortified the city once he got there. Now, there's this, let me just address this really quick. Um, there's this little confusing part there where it's like, David hates the, lime, the, blind and the, uh, the blind and the lame. And you might read that and go, what in the world is happening there? And David is basically giving some trash talk back to the Jebusites. He doesn't really hate the blind and the lame. In fact, what we're going to see in subsequent chapters is he actually takes Mephibosheth, who is Saul's uh, other son surviving, who is, or sorry, Jonathan's son, who is crippled. He's going to take him into his kingdom. So he doesn't hate the blind and the lame. He is, uh, he is basically making a taunt against the Jebusites. If you say that it's the blind and the lame that are going to drive me off. Well, then I hate the blind and the lame. And I'm going to show you if you're a Jebusite, I'm going to kill you. So it's basically him kind of talking, talking trash, I guess you would say to the Jebusites after they're already defeated. Um, So Joab goes in and then there's this other part in verse eight, where you see that there he's David sort of gives a tip as to how they might uh, go about, uh, conquering the city of Jerusalem. And he says, go up the water shaft. Uh, we don't even really know exactly what that is, but some archeology span over, over in recent de- uh, history has, has kind of maybe given us some insight as to what this verse actually means. And I want to show you that that blank is archeology. span If you're writing that down, I'm going to skip to the next slide because I want to show you um, the way, what we have discovered in the, the building of the wall of Jerusalem, you have this, uh, if everybody can see that, you have inside the city on the far, should be the far left of your screen. And then there's a tunnel that goes down under the city and steps down to this gradual tunnel that steps down or that, that slowly, uh, slowly slopes down to a shaft and under the city wall, you'll see the city wall up above the gradual tunnel. So the tunnels comes down and this allowed uh, the people inside the city, and th- th- we don't know who built it, but we, we assume it would have been the Jebusites or somebody else that dwelled there, but they, uh, but they built this tunnel underneath the wall so that in the event that Israel was bombarded at its city wall by outside people, they, they came against the city wall to attack it, that they couldn't, uh, they, would, they could still get their provisions of water on the outside of the city wall. So the city wall was pretty close in. It was pretty kind of uh, close quarters, as it were. And outside the city wall was where a lot of resources were, namely water. And the Gihon Spring is out here on the outside of the city wall. So how do you get to that if you're bombarded at the city wall and you risk running into enemy territory if you get outside the wall? So they kind of built this little water shaft outside so they could drop their buckets down into the spring and pull them back up through the shaft and all of this. And so it may be that what David is saying in 2 Samuel 5, 8 is if you want to get access into the city wall, we're going to go up the water shaft and we're going to go up that, that, uh, that, that incline and we're going to go into the city and we're going to take it from the inside. 
Um, it's not totally clear, but it's, it's plausible. And what they would have done then would they, they would have kind of the Jebusites would have camouflaged the Gahan spring and, and, uh, still been able to get water from it so that people wouldn't know that it was there and they had that shaft. And so it appears as though Joab, who again is a Navy seal of the earliest Navy seal there was goes up the water shaft and leads his men up the water shaft, I suppose, and takes the city from the inside and uh and and conquers it and the way the text makes it read it was really quick and just just you know not much to it and we understand that it was joab from the that same story in first chronicles joab remember he killed abner so he's not he's not loved he's not beloved uh with david and and all of that but he does get rewarded for being the one that conquers uh, the Jebusites and going in uh, and taking over the stronghold. Now, once the stronghold is, uh, is or once Jerusalem is conquered by David and his men, uh, he builds up the stronghold from the Milo and inward, which is a fortress on the outside, uh, and, and inward. He builds it up so that it's, it's more fortified and, and more strong. And so then we see this first cycle where he conquers Jerusalem and then he begins to build himself a house of cedar and stone. But this is very important because it's not him that's, that's supplying all the materials. It's actually the king of Tyre that supplies him the materials. It says, um, look at Second uh, Samuel uh, 5, 11, starting in verse 11, the one I started to read just a minute ago. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. This same king is going to actually do a very similar thing with, uh, with, um, with Solomon later on. But this is significant because you have a Gentile who is part of a, a far-reaching nation uh, that is, is giving tribute to the Jewish king. Uh, you could think of him maybe as the first Gentile convert, as it were. But he is submitting to God's king over the house. He's supplying him with all kinds of things. He's, a, he's a, an ally of David. And Tyre doesn't necessarily take that same approach later on after David, but um, they certainly do during David and Solomon's reign under this particular king, um, Hiram. And so... David not only begins to build uh, a, a house there, but he begins to build a what, I, what we'll just call a people house, meaning he grows in, he has 11 sons and an undisclosed number of daughters that he has in, in the text. So he, he's growing his house in every which direction and people are paying him tribute. Now, one of the things that's very interesting here is that the king of Tyre, that is, is that the author of Second Samuel put he puts this story right after David takes control of Jerusalem. However, the king of Tyre doesn't sit on the throne of Tyre until much later in David's reign. So the author of Second Samuel has put this there for thematic reasons to help you see. David built, David is building the kingdom of God in multiple ways. And the king of Tyre is one of those ways. I, I think we do have some comments. Is that right, Blake? 
Yeah. So uh, Sean asked um, to clarify what's meant from the Milo inward. Yeah. Um, the Milo is a, is a, a fortified portion of Israel. So it's like a, a, a I'll, I'll put that on a, I'll try to find that on a map and see if I could put that up there next week, but um, a, a fortified place in uh, Jerusalem and inward. So it's kind of just giving a territorial marker. Is there another question? Uh, no, you answered it in the course of talking. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Um, where am I at? Okay. Th- but we also see in this uh, process that there is a, a, a pitfall for David. And it's this whole bit about him and, and his continual habit of taking women and concubines and growing his kingdom that way. There's nothing wrong with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and having tons of kids. There is, however, uh, um, an issue, it seems, with the taking of wives. Uh, And we're going to see that David's heart, uh, I don't know if it's fair to say that David's heart grows callous to the idea of taking women however and whenever he chooses, but... um, certainly does seem to be a theme that doesn't pay off in the end for neither he nor his son. Uh, so we talked about that a good deal last week. And then several weeks back, you can go back on the podcast when back probably when we were meeting together, I think was the last time, maybe it was the last time we met together. Maybe the time before that I dealt a, a lot with, um, polygamy in the old Testament, which is a difficult concept for us that live, uh, in the new Testament age where we would, think it was, you know, anathema to have another wife. Um, You know, the Old Testament, it it wasn't as such. And so uh, it'd be worth maybe even investigating that if you have questions about it. Uh, I'd be happy to answer those too if you have questions about those later. But the mat, let's look at some of the theological concepts that are being uh, addressed here in the text that are being implied at the very least in the text. David's wars were a new conquest, and David is representative of a new Joshua. He's leading the people into the promised land and taking over the land. And what you need to wrap your mind around, uh, because boy, does this pay off in the Gospels and in the in the um, in the in the New Testament all over. That uh, this idea of typology. And the notion that God is bringing back some of the same themes and uh, refreshing some of these same images that he has brought to mind early on and prepared the Jews for, he's bringing them to fruition in Jesus in the New Testament. And you, you, you kind of have to be prepared for that, and you'll start to see how David, for instance, is accomplishing what Joshua was commanded to do. Um, and he's, yeah, he's better. And, and as time goes on, it's like these, these new, there's these new and better uh, versions of the prototype, as it were. And so David is sort of taking on this mantle of the new and better Joshua, who's, who's actually establishing the kingdom uh, of God in, in the land. And Joshua's conquest, we see at the end of the book of Joshua, culminated with a sanctuary at Shiloh. 
And part of the reason why Shiloh was such an important uh, city. And David's conquest is going to result in a, a similar sanctuary, a tent, if you will, uh, in Zion, on Zion's hill. And the Ark of the Covenant, he's going to bring in there to, to, so that it's a, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a tabernacle. It's a temple for, for, for the Lord to, to dwell in. And so it is, um, it's clear that, that David is sort of bringing in what Joshua had failed to do. And we're going to see even more of that uh, later on, where David is actually functioning in this, in this text, a new and better Adam, a new and better Joshua. Uh, we're going to see many, many more things later on. But then by the time we get to the New Testament, what do we see? But all of these images that God has prepared Israel for. And that's what you have to keep in mind when you read the Old Testament is every page of scripture is God developing Israel's story to teach them and to help them understand what life in his kingdom is really like. And they're going to fail in spectacular ways. The point is going to be driven home in spectacular ways. One type that you are very familiar with and you're used to by now, and we just celebrated, or in a, in a manner of speaking celebrated, is Passover. You have this concept of the Passover lamb and, uh, and that being provided for the people, the blood sprinkled on the doorway. That is a type of Christ, literally Savior. That, that lamb and the blood of the lamb was a, was a form of a savior in that it saved them from the angel of death that passed over the doorways. But we don't, and God is teaching them that. And he tells them in the book of Exodus, you celebrate this year to celebrate this every year. Don't you miss a year. You're going to celebrate this every single year. And here's how you're going to celebrate. He's down to the day. He's particular. You will do it just like this throughout your time. Uh, and he's very detailed in how it will be. And and we don't really know why, but what we do know why, I mean, as we read the Old Testament, we don't really know why. We just know that he's particular. But what we do know is that it's so drilled into the Jews, they celebrate it to this very day. Some of them making a pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover. But why was it drilled in their head? Well, because Christ died on Passover weekend and he's, he's the Passover lamb. And the angel of death, the judgment of God is passing over his people as the blood of God's lamb is sprinkled on his people. And so uh, his wrath is absorbed in the shoulders of Christ as he hangs on the cross. And so that story, that, that understanding, that, that history that God has developed in Moses and perpetuated in the people of Israel on through the generations comes to fruition in Christ. Well, the Passover is one of many that he brings to fruition in Christ. And John, the the Apostle John, as he writes his gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, Paul, I mean, they they all bring these in, uh, Peter brings these into fruition uh, as they get into their their gospel. So, uh, and, and their epistles. And so, you, you start to, you need to start to train your eye to look for them as David begins to do some of the things that Joshua is doing. It's natural for the authors to point those out in very subtle ways. So um, it's, it's, I think it's, it's helpful for your study of the Old Testament. Questions?
man, everybody's microphone's dead. It's like, yeah, Millie, I saw your microphone go off. Millie, what? what? <laughs> hey, uh, Michael. Yeah. Um, when they would go, when they would go in to conquer these towns and build, um, they just built one house. I mean, it just. <laughs> What, what did that go into more houses to make a town? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, uh, so let's take the Joshua and his conquest moves into the nation of Israel or moves into the land, the promised land and conquers. And what do they say? Uh, in fact, Moses is part of Moses' warning in Deuteronomy. You're going to occupy vineyards that you didn't build and houses you didn't build. So the first thing you do when you drive out the, the people is you occupy their houses. You start claiming territory that was theirs. And so that would be pretty natural. David is going to build himself a house there, or I guess other people are going to do it for him, but um, going to build himself a house. So when you asked a question a while back about palaces and things like that, well, now we're starting to move in that direction. All right. Uh, and so, so yes, you would move in there. You would start building houses inside and outside the city. Um, perhaps your military men, things like that. You would start repossessing uh, houses that were that were formerly Jebusite houses, um, and likewise vineyards and farms and all those kinds of things. You'd pick right up where you left off, uh, unless which you can see why that would be such a devastating thing or such a difficult thing for a soldier to move in to a city and God say destroy it all, burn it to the ground. Right? Mm-hmm. Is you go. <laughs> wait a minute, you know, like, what am I going to live in? You know? Uh, so, so it was clear that they would repossess a lot of things and, but, but, but then building would obviously be a natural part of that too. Yeah. Thank you. Sean mobs. I see your hand. I can't see everybody's hand. So if you're raising your hand, I can only see like four people. So just, you know, open your microphone and talk. Sean mobs. So the day wipe out all the Jedi sites, like kill them all, or did some of them like linger around with them in you know in Jerusalem, or did they just move on elsewhere? Uh, well, it's a good question because the text just it, well, it's kind of a little bit silent on some of that. Most likely, I would I would wager a guess if I could, and this is probably more of like an educated guess, I guess, is that the ones in Jerusalem were driven off. There were probably Jebusites that hung around at outside of that, uh, outside of that city that were somewhere else. But, um, those in Jerusalem, uh, I would say, suggest probably for the vast majority were conquered. Um, perhaps this may be uncomfortable for us, but perhaps some of the women were preserved, uh, as now Hebrew wives, I would imagine. Uh, but I don't know for sure. Um, other than that, I mean, honestly, when it comes to the taking of Jerusalem, it's sort of anticlimactic. You expect it to be this big, oh, they're going to take Jerusalem. And then it's like, and he killed them all. So and then that was it. You know, <laughs> you'd like a little more elaboration. What happened? Give me some details. And there's just scant on the details when it comes to that. For some reason. But I, I think probably the city of Jerusalem eradicated. Any others? Blake, anything in the comments? No, but I stopped your sharing so you can see everyone. Oh, okay. There we go. I can see everyone now. 
All right. Well, um, if that's it, then we're going to close for tonight. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll be dismissed for yet another week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a time like this, even to, to be able to just teach and, and, um, and really just kind of have fun as we look at uh, the story that you have crafted over uh, years of history, preparing the nation of Israel for what you are to do, preparing the world for what you are to do in Christ, showing us all of these incredible details, all of which pay off in the end. And as we, as we reveal Christ in the New Testament, what an amazing, amazing thing this is that we have a document that has survived how many thousands of years uh, so well and, and with so many copies that we have an embarrassment of riches. What an amazing testimony that is of its truth and its validity and its value um, that so many men, as they read it, sought to copy it and so that we might have it today, that we might be able to read it, that we might be able to see um, what you have done in this history as you have carefully developed your people from as far back as Adam, um, all the way preparing them for the advent of of Christ. Um, Just such an amazing testimony. And when we think about it, it's staggering um, to think about what all uh, is involved in that process and how much confidence that gives us in the validity and the truth of scripture uh, to know that so many men over so many different languages and so many different places and so many different years compiled telling the same, same narrative, the same truth and, and that we could read it and be expected to obey and that you would give us the ability through the advent of the Holy spirit to obey, um, the words in this text that we should trust you. And, uh, so father, I pray that over the course of our study in, um, in the old Testament, that you would put that burden on our heart, that you are in all the promises you made in the old Testament, you have not failed on one of them and that we can trust your promises to come to fruition. The promises that you've made to send Christ back, uh, to judge the living and the dead, to establish his consummated kingdom on earth, that we would dwell there with him for eternity. We long for that day. We want that day. And the longer this coronavirus goes on, the, the more it makes us want that day. So we are grateful for that. And I, uh, so we pray that that would be the burden of our hearts as we study scripture, as we listen to sermons, as we sing songs and pray prayers and read texts of scripture, that the burden of our hearts would be to be satisfied in you and finding you in your word. And I pray that that would be a true delight to us. Pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen.